Well, turn with me now in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2. I'm going to read briefly from Hebrews chapter 2. Verses 1 through 18. I guess that's not that brief, is it? I'm, I'm so in the habit of going to read briefly. It's the whole chapter. It's 18 verses. Hebrews chapter 2. It'll provide a little bit, little bit of context for our sermon passage back in Proverbs 11. Hebrews chapter 2. Hear now the word of the Lord. Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him? God, also bearing witness, both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to His will. For He has not put the world to come, of which we speak, in subjection to angels. But one testified in a certain place, saying, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels. For the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor that he by the grace of God might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one. For which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly I will sing praise to you. And again, I will put my trust in you. And again, here am I and the children whom God has given me. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death, He might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, in all things he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. Amen. The book of Hebrews makes the point to us That what we see in our lives seldom matches with what we're being told in the scriptures. 
Have you ever noticed that? That we read the Bible, and we very often piously nod along and say, yes, 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 Lord, yes, Lord. When the reality is that often the Bible tells us stuff that doesn't seem to match our experience. I can give you one example. The Psalms say, Lord, judge me according to my righteousness. How many of you want to sign up for that? It doesn't seem to match that the Spirit of God would command the church of God to sing, judge me according to my righteousness. When we are so devoid of righteousness. And yet, the scriptures speak truth, even though we can't see it. The book of Hebrews says that what we must learn to do is to see Jesus. To see His sufferings, to see His temptation, and to know that our sufferings and our temptations are redeemed in His. Does that make sense? That in Him our life finds meaning, even the most meaningless ones. This morning we were struggling through all the sifting sand of like leadership not available, presenters not available. What do we do? And in the middle of that flurry of text messages that have provided this worship service looking so seamless for you, my phone died. And I seriously sat there in my green chair and I said, Jesus, do I really need this right now? Did I really need that right now? And evidently I did. (laughs) I have no idea why. But Jesus redeems even those seemingly meaningless frustrations. The seemingly empty moments are full of grace and of glory. With that in mind, turn back to Proverbs chapter 11. Our sermon passage this morning is from Proverbs chapter 11, verses 19 through 31. Proverbs chapter 11, verses 19 through 31. Solomon has been speaking to his son Throughout the book of Proverbs, laying out for him these pocket-sized pieces of wisdom that he can carry around throughout his life in order that he might, as king and head of the church, be a good and just ruler. Proverbs chapter 11, verses 19 through 31. Here again the word of the Lord. As righteousness leads to life, so he who pursues evil pursues it to his own death. Those who are of a perverse heart are an abomination to the Lord, but the blameless in their ways are his delight. Though they join forces, the wicked will not go unpunished, but the posterity of the righteous will be delivered. As a ring of gold in a swine's snout, so is a lovely woman who lacks discretion. The the desire of the righteous is only good. But the expectation of the wicked is wrath. There is one who scatters, yet increases more. There is one who withholds more than is right, but it leads to poverty. The generous soul will be made rich. And he who waters will also be watered himself. The people will curse him who withholds grain, but blessing will be on the head of him who sells it. He who earnestly seeks good finds favor. Trouble will come to him who seeks evil. 
He who trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like foliage. He who troubles his own house will inherit the wind, and the fool will be servant to the wise of heart. The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life. He who wins souls is wise. If the righteous will be recompensed on earth, how much more the ungodly and the sinner. Amen and amen. In the early 90s, IBM had fallen on hard times and they were contracting as a company. They closed their offices in Kingston, New York, and a large chunk of my childhood church moved away. There was one family in particular to whom my family was close, and they were returning to their childhood home in the West and pursuing new work. They had rose bushes, and they knew that my mom loved their rose bushes, so they they called up my mom and dad just before they headed West and said... If you want the rose bushes, come dig them up. You can have the rose bushes. So my mom and dad drove out there one evening, dug up the rose bushes, gave their hugs and said thank yous and goodbyes, and brought home this last parting gift of their dear friends, the rose bushes. These cute little rose bushes. One went into the corner of the lawn here, and one went in over there and over there, and before too long... These rose bushes were towering over me and were spreading all along the edge of the driveway. Dad went out with a shovel and split their roots and spread them around. Then each of those pieces grew up and spread out as well. And so they tried to kill some of the rose bushes and they didn't die. They just came back and spread even more. And pretty soon we looked like uh, Sleeping Beauty's castle where there was just like rose bushes all the way around the farmhouse, you know. The rose bushes had such life, such vitality, such vigor. You couldn't kill them and you couldn't stop them from spreading. They were going to grow up. They were going to grow out. They were going to multiply. God had told them, be fruitful and multiply, and they were going to do it. My friends, this is the metaphor that Solomon uses for his son this morning. He says to his son, those who have Christ within have a life within. A life that grows up. A life that grows out. A life that is fruitful and multiply. And multiplies. Solomon is telling his son that Jesus gives life to the world through us. That he gives his life to us in order that he might give life to the world through us. And so he calls upon us this morning to help others grow. To become the kind of Christ-centered people. To have the kind of Christ-centered homes. Do the kind of Christ-centered work that produces life in what we do. There is a life given to us in Christ. Let us serve that life to others. Notice at the beginning of of the section... Solomon's first proverb connects righteousness to life. Verse 19. As righteousness leads to life, so he who pursues evil pursues it to his own death. The binary, again, as we've so often seen with Proverbs, is self-explanatory. It's very obvious on the surface, with good reason. 
Solomon wants to make an obvious point. Those who have righteousness find that that righteousness leads them to life. It inclines them to life, says the King James Bible. It's this work within them, this righteousness within them, that causes them to grow up toward life. They prefer life. They pursue life. They create more life. They add to life. Like a plant with its propensity to grow toward the sun, Solomon says that the righteous people have a propensity to grow toward what is alive, to produce life, to cause life. By contrast, the wicked one, the evil one, pursues sin to the point of self-destruction, pursues evil until it destroys himself or herself. There is an evil at work within humanity that only ends in death. But Solomon will return to this theme in verse 31. Notice, if the righteous are recompensed or rewarded on earth, how much more the ungodly and the sinner. In both verse 19 and 31, Solomon points out that this is an observable fact. If the righteous are rewarded on earth, if you can see that those who live a virtuous life live well and live long, then you likewise can see that those who on earth pursue evil and selfish ambition, the ungodly and the sinner, end up rewarded with death here on earth. The illustrations are are plentiful, obvious, and easy. If you break the law while drinking and driving, you increase your likelihood of killing yourself. In fact, if you embrace a life of addiction of any kind, alcohol, drugs, sex, pornography, social media, sugar, it doesn't matter. If you are indulgently addicted to it, it always leads to death. Right here, on earth. You can see it. You can connect the dots. You abuse the good things of this world. You abuse the good gift of your own body, your own mind, your own soul. And when you wickedly, self-indulgently do this, you destroy yourself. But Solomon notices, he's making a point to his son. This is not merely a natural phenomenon. It's not simply that what must go up must come down. It's as natural as gravity. That those who have righteousness go toward that which is life-giving. And that those who have sin go toward that which is death. Solomon says, no, actually, it is supernatural. That polarity and that propensity between humans is rooted in their relationship to God. Notice verse 20. Those who are of a perverse heart... By perverse heart, he means crooked, twisted, inclined to evil, departing from what is good, departing from what is life-giving. Those who have that perverse heart are hated by the Lord. They pursue their perversity until it destroys them because the Lord hates them. He loathes their wickedness and their selfishness. 
There is a God ruling over this world, and he is causing there to be consequences for human action. He is bringing justice to bear, and those who pursue evil will have their just deserts. But so too the righteous, in verse 20, the blameless in their ways are his delight. They are inclined to life because he loves them. He delights in them. To cut to the chase, Solomon is saying to his son, if you have been given righteousness by Christ, because surely as we all know, when you start a sentence that says, as righteousness leads to life, we can all conclude that all of us are dead, right? Because Paul says, no one is righteous, no, not one. So if Solomon says to his son, righteousness leads to life, that means that none of us are going to live. Unless there's another source of righteousness. Jesus imputes to us his righteousness. And in that righteousness, Christ's righteousness, there is life. But remember the connection to verse 31. There is earthly life, not just heavenly life. There is earthly value for us to be rooted in the righteousness of Christ. The righteousness of Christ is not just a ticket into glory. It is in fact an earthly expression of vitality in God. That we live life here and we live it abundantly. That when the righteousness of Christ is given to us, we live. We really live. We lean toward life. We cause life to grow up around us. We grow in our life, but we also have others live. We cause them to live by living in Christ. He delights in us, and that delight is the fountainhead of our life. Solomon then points to two areas of life in which this life can work itself out. Two areas of our existence, let's say, where we can see the reality that when Christ's righteousness is within us, life comes out from us. First, he points to what would be, frankly, the most obvious example. He points to the family. Notice in verses 21 and 22, he puts together some rather unexpected parables. Though they join forces, the wicked will not go unpunished, but the posterity of the righteous will be delivered as a ring of gold in a swine's snout, So is a lovely woman who lacks discretion. Not only is verse 22 one of the most famous Proverbs, it is also one of the most poetic. Did you notice the alliteration? Did you notice the assonance? That's a new poet poet word that I learned like a month ago. Did you notice? That means that the vowels match. And uh, did you notice the rhythm? As a ring of gold in a swine's snout, so is the lovely woman who lacks discretion. It's an incredibly beautiful English phrase, if an incredibly painful truth. But Solomon will build to that point by first saying, though they join forces, literally though they walk hand in hand, the wicked will not go unpunished. Solomon points his son to a partnership that is expected to mitigate or minimize the consequences of evil doing. I think he has in mind marriage. That's why the next line says offspring. That's why the next line says a woman's beauty in contrast to a woman's virtue. This hand-in-hand partnership Solomon speaks of is most likely marriage. 
And he points out that marriage in and of itself doesn't save. They join forces. They literally hold hands. And in their holding of hands, the wicked do not at all diminish their punishment. Isn't this remarkably observed constantly in our lives? What happens when you take two sinners and put them in close proximity to each other? They multiply their sin. They don't just add their sin. They multiply their sin. I mean, we certainly see this among saints, don't we? Solomon says that the punishment is not mitigated by marriage. But rather, the contrast in verse 21 is that the posterity of the righteous will be delivered. That is to say, the marriage of the righteous, when rooted in the righteousness of Christ, brings forth children of righteousness, children inclined toward righteousness, children given a childhood of deliverance, an opportunity to be saved. One of my favorite testimonies was at Geneva College. There was this young man who got up and he said, God saved me from this litany of sins. You guys have perhaps heard this kind of testimony. You've perhaps made fun of this kind of testimony. He goes through all the incredible heinous sins. I was saved from drugs and alcohol and sex and all kinds of evil. And I I was spared from all of this sin. And then he ended it with, I was born to godly parents who didn't let me fall into any of that. I was saved from the experience of those sins. I didn't just turn from them having done them. I was kept from them by the righteousness of my parents. Hand in hand, the marriage rooted in the righteousness of Christ brings forth offspring, posterity, who are likely to be delivered. But then in verse 22, Solomon then drives his point home to his son. And so son, choose the spouse wisely. So son, be sensitive to the nature, particularly of males, when picking their marriage partners. Men generally are attracted first to appearance. The other side of the aphorism is that they are generally not attracted after appearance. Their brains shut off once they find the attractive appearance. Solomon says to his son, don't be that way. See real beauty. See true beauty. It's not in the skin. It's in the soul. It's in the virtue. It's in the godliness. Marry a woman for her wisdom. It's an incredible word, this discretion. The Hebrew means Good taste. Perhaps, as some might want, marry a woman who has good fashion. But that's not what he means. He means in how she lives. She lives out the righteousness of Christ. That is, she is robed in the righteousness of Christ. She is armed with the deeds of the saints. That is the righteousness of Christ. There is a ring of gold in a swine's snout. That is the beauty of another human being that distracts us from true beauty. That we should wed ourselves to what is beautiful is inescapable. The human soul longs for beauty, seeks beauty. But Solomon says to us, be wise, seek true beauty, the beauty of virtue and of godliness. 
And in this way, the home becomes a place of life. But lest we get bogged down in the details, which I already feel like I've already done, the Solomon's using this as an illustration of our broader experience. It's not exclusively restrained to marriage, for there's more beauty in a human than just a spouse, than just physical beauty being contrasted with character beauty or internal beauty. This can be true of anyone with whom you hold hands. This can be true of a business partner. This can be true of neighbors down the street. This can be true of your prayer partners, your Bible reading partners. Solomon says that if your relationship is rooted in the righteousness of Christ, it can be a life-giving relationship. It is most obvious in marriage where generally speaking, often, when a man and a woman comes together, there are babies. And even when there's not, even the secularists recognize that there is nothing more stabilizing to a civilization than marriage. There is nothing more life-giving to an economy than the self-sacrificial love a man and a woman have for each other for their entire life. It is the bedrock of human civilization. It gives life to the world, literally in babies, but also theologically in God's covenant economy. From that, we can deduce that our relationships must be rooted in the righteousness of Christ. Even those relationships in which you hold hands with unbelievers. If that relationship, at least as far as you're concerned, is rooted in your righteousness, which is in Christ, is rooted in your love for Christ, that can be a life-giving relationship. Does that make sense? Are you guys with me? Solomon is saying to his son, if you want to be a source of life in this world, you need to be rooted in the life of Christ, his righteousness. The second area where this can be expressed, not only in our relationships, our marriages, our families, but also then in our work, in how we work. All the introverts go, yes, okay, away from people and now to jobs. The desire of the righteous is only good, but the expectation of the wicked is wrath. There is one who scatters, yet increases more. And there is one who withholds more than is right, but it leads to poverty. Solomon says to his son, that if you go into your work with the expectation of a righteous person, that is one who is rooted in the righteousness of Christ, your expectation, your desire is to do good, to cause others to do good. This is a great challenge for us, because again, we find ourselves disqualified. What is your main motive for doing your job? Many of us, many days, it's to get paid. Many of us, many days, it's to avoid being bored. Many of us, many days, it's to get out of our house, though we would never tell our wife or kids that. Many of us, many days, have many impure and sinful motives for why we do our work. And Solomon says, not so for the righteous. The one who is rooted in the righteousness of Christ desires to do work in a way that does good for others, that has the Chick-fil-A spirit. My pleasure. I want to do this for you. 
even if they don't really mean it. They at least have the veneer, the verbal edge that says, I want to do you good. I want to serve you. But the expectation of the wicked is wrath. What they hope for and what they expect is a destruction, a conflict. For the one who scatters is the one who shares like the righteous, yet increases more. There is a way to give away the good things of this life, causing yourself to prosper. But then there is the one who withholds, that is, who expects to enrich oneself. This expectation of the wicked is to store up, to hoard, to shelter, and to thus grow by storing within. But this constricting and narrowing of one's life leads to poverty. The more they grasp and the more they grab, the less they have. The greedier they live, the emptier their life. Solomon says, no, the righteousness by which we give away what we have, our time, our affection, our listening ear, our money, our clothing, our work, our service to others, as we give these gifts of God to others intending to do them good, our lives are enriched by it. Solomon says in verse 25, the generous soul will be made rich and he who waters will also be watered himself. By working in such a way as to cause others to prosper, we prosper. By working in such a way as to water others, Solomon begins to hint at his controlling metaphor. The first step in getting anything to grow is to water it. If I want something to grow, I've got to give it water. It's the first thing that creates life. Back in the beginning in Genesis, when God is creating the heavens and the earth... He creates light, and then he creates water, and then he creates land. These are the three ingredients of life. Without light, water, and land, there is no life. Solomon here points by saying well-watered to the flourishing of life. How do we get life to flourish on earth? Service. Service to others. Love for others by which we give of our good to one another. We work in such a way as to serve others. This is not merely restricted to the charity, okay? More often than not, we imagine this chiefly an expression of charity. But I want to submit, friends, that the chief expression for us in this particular application is the Monday to Friday 9 to 5 that none of you have. It's the Monday through Saturday, 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. that all of you do, or whatever. I don't know what your hours are. But whatever your hours are, that job is actually Christ calling to you to enrich the world and to give life. Just like marriage and the family call together to be rooted in Christ in order for life to come out. So our work is us coming together in order to be rooted in Christ so that life can come out. Now, some of you have jobs where this is just crystal clear. You come together and there's life, right? The baby comes out. There's life. Just like marriage, it's pretty straightforward. Some of you sit there and go, well, what does my job do that makes life? 
Well, maybe we got to get together and have a conversation about that. Maybe there's some creative thinking that's needed. But whatever the answer is, Christ has called you to work in your life. A work that is meant to enrich this world in a way that people can be fruitful and multiply. We don't do jobs to fill our bank accounts. We do jobs to bless the world. Your chief mission is your job. Your chief mission field is your job. Just statistically, it's where you are, more hours than anywhere else. Family and work are the two that Solomon points his son to and says, this is what you're going to do 90% of your life. Make sure that what you do there is rooted in Christ, is rooted in the righteousness of Christ, that what you give to your spouse is Jesus and his righteousness. What you give to your children is Jesus and his righteousness. What you give to your coworkers is Jesus and his righteousness to your clients and your customers, that you live out that righteousness and so become a source of life and righteousness. Solomon then reverses flow. He returns to these same points in reverse direction. Notice there in verse 26, 25 and 26, I already stole 25, it was supposed to go with 26. In 26, the people will curse him who withholds grain, but blessing will be on the head of him who sells it. Having already addressed the work, Solomon continues to address the work in, 23, or in 25 and 26. That those who hoard their work and their riches are cursed, but those who sell it, notice he doesn't just say give it away, those who sell it, those who go into the business of serving others, who go into the business of helping others are rewarded. I've made that point. All right, returning then to the family, he who earnestly seeks good finds favor, but trouble will come to him who seeks evil. He who trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like foliage. That first hint of a metaphor, well watered, starts to grow up as we see foliage, leaves, fruitfulness. Solomon's metaphor is showing us that there are roots in the righteousness of Christ that drink of the living water that is Christ that now produce a flourishing foliage, a thick canopy of fruitfulness. They seek good and find favor wherever they go. This is the expression applied to Christ in his earthly ministry, that he grew in wisdom and knowledge in favor with God and man. As he expressed the righteous life within him, he found favor with God and man. He sought good for everyone who was around him. One of the most convicting passages for me as an introverted pastor is when Jesus crosses the sea to escape the crowd, to have a few minutes of peace and quiet, and the crowd shows up, and the very next line is, I really don't like this line as an introverted pastor, and Jesus had compassion on them. Let me tell you, when I'm exhausted from pastoral ministry, it's hard to have compassion. But not for Jesus. Being rooted in righteousness, having a life of righteousness deep within him, he earnestly sought good for others. He earnestly sought to do good for others and was filled with compassion for them. 
Rather, those who seek evil bring about trouble. They trust in their riches and they fall like leaves in the autumn. But not so the righteous. Their foliage is evergreen and ever-present. The illustration emerges. Solomon turns inward again. He who troubles his own house will inherit the wind. The metaphor is strong. The one who troubles his own house. In the Hebrew culture, house is as expansive as you can possibly get. There's that great debate over Acts 16 between Baptists and Presbyterians, in which we say they baptize the household. And the Baptists say, well, there might not have been babies there. And we say only an American would think that. Nobody in Hebrew culture would assume a household didn't have babies because households were huge. Households meant co-workers, employers, cousins, aunts, uncles, grandparents, grandkids. It was multi-generational clan. Solomon says that the one who troubles his earthly relationships, one who damages his network of love, will inherit the wind. This is a language for children. Just as the contrast before the righteous bring forth offspring that are delivered, so now the one who troubles his own house inherits the wind. The fool is the servant of the wise. There is a reverse of their relationships. The one whose life was full of relationships, full of love and full of peace, is now alone. We have so many stories throughout great literature. Of the old, lonely, miser. Who is without love. Who is without friend. Who is without family. Because all their life they pursued self and self and self. And in so doing drove away the world. And Solomon says this is what you can expect. When you alienate those around you. But by contrast in verse 30. Solomon brings his metaphor together into one clear image. The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he who wins souls is wise. This idea of winning souls is is literally to capture, to take, to seize. But it's meant in a positive way. That's why they say win, a more positive verb. The one who captures the affection of others. The one who with a life of righteousness and of love. Draws others in and bonds them to them. Have you ever met those people. Who have no enemies in the world. Just present friends and future friends. Have you ever met those people who walk through the world. And everybody they meet. Just adheres to them. This person is full of love. This person is full of joy, full of warmth. This person is magnetic. Solomon says such is what his ambition for his son is. One who wins souls, whose love is so compelling, it draws people in and they want to be in relationship with him. They want to be in union with him. This is, of course, Simultaneously, Christ and Christ alone. And us. It is also us. The bride and body of Christ. 
who united to Him by faith are rooted in His righteousness, are partakers of His love and His life, so that we might be winners of souls as He has won our soul. He has won us with His love, and we are thus empowered to win the world with our love, that is to say, His love in us. This becomes so powerful and true in his metaphor. The fruit of the righteous is the tree of life. Okay, one, the context. This is coming from Genesis chapter 1, when Adam and Eve are created in the garden, and there is a tree of life. And when they eat the forbidden fruit, they are banished from the tree of life. They cannot have life. It will be death. Not life. Then you jump over to Revelation chapter 22. And what's back? Tree of life. Right there in the midst of the new Jerusalem. Right at the heart of the new creation. No longer is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the midst of the garden. Now the tree of life is in the midst of the city. The center of human existence is no longer the testing that is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The center of humanity is now life, a tree of life. And this tree of life, it grows up and fills all the new Jerusalem. It heals us with its 12 kinds of leaves. It shades us from the burning sun. It comforts us and embraces us. It's a picture of Christ and the totality of his salvation. But notice what Solomon actually says. Read the line carefully with me. The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life. Jesus is not the only tree of life. He makes you a tree of life. The righteous one, Christ, gives to you his righteousness that you might live righteously. Christ, the resurrected one, has raised your spirits from sin and death that you might live and live abundantly. Christ, the tree of life, has sent out runners to raise up new trees, trees of life. You are the fruit of his righteousness, a tree of life, a source of life in your home, a source of life in your community, a source of life in your job. Friends, Jesus gives life through you to others. In him, help others grow. Please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks for this beautiful truth that in Christ there is life and life abundantly. Life sufficient to save our souls. Life sufficient to save the world. We give you thanks for these wonderful things and ask that that life would be given to us today that we might live well to the praise of Christ's name. This we ask in his name. Amen.